Right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 4. The legacy of humanity. Genesis 4 in your Bibles. Looking at verses 9 through 24. Not quite finishing Genesis 4 today. We'll have one more message on it, um, but getting pretty close. The legacy of humanity. Genesis 4 is the chapter of the narrative of the beginning of man where the weight of Adam's choice and subsequent fall to sin becomes abundantly apparent. This began, as we have considered the past several weeks, with Cain murdering his brother. And we talked about that from several aspects. We talked about the reality of it, and then we talked about how uh, this relates to human nature as it relates to this concept that Cain, uh, which we, we find in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, that Cain killed his brother specifically because his own works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. And we talked about the human propensity to hate those who do righteousness because they cause us to feel the reality of our sinfulness and uh, the warnings in Scripture about the nature of Christian persecution related to this reality that when we do right, others will hate you for it. As we would expect, however, this is only the tip of the iceberg as it relates to the depravity of the human heart that was initiated on the day that Adam fell to sin and man was ushered into the darkness of the separation from the life of God. And that's what we're going to see today. That, as Paul would say very clearly in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. So we pick up in verse 9 in Genesis chapter 4, and we'll read verses 9 and 10. The Bible says this, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he, that would be Cain, said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me, from the ground. So following this murder, right, we, we talked about the murder, Cain kills Abel, and um, following that murder, God does something that's very characteristic of God. He confronts Cain, but in a, in, in a characteristic way, he asks questions rather than necessarily makes accusations. We see this regularly, both throughout the Old Testament and then with Jesus' ministry in the New Testament, something which we would do well to learn from ourselves, actually, as it relates to measure of confrontation. When God wants to engage the conscience of a man, he does so by asking questions rather than making accusations. We saw this with Adam and Eve, right? That Adam and Eve, they sin, and they hear God walking through in the cool of the day in the garden, and they hide themselves, and God says, where are you? Well, God knew where they were, but he says, where are you? And then when they reveal themselves, uh, God asks them questions. Did you eat of the fruit? God knows they ate of the fruit. But he is invoking the conscience by asking questions. Parents, this is a good thing to do with your children. If you want to invoke their conscience, don't make accusations, ask questions. Get them to express what they did or why they did what they did. And in doing so, it's going to help connect the dots in their mind that what they did was wrong and invokes the conscience. God does this. Jesus did this all the time, right? He asks questions all the time of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We would do well to do the same. So God knew what Cain had done, but asking questions is a very helpful method of gaining insight into the heart of man and invoking the conscience. Would Cain, when he was questioned, would he acknowledge his sin and then repent? Would he humble himself? If a direct accusation might harden Cain's heart, but a question would allow Cain the opportunity to humble himself. Of course, he did not do that. 
but it would reflect a, a repentant heart. Would Cain, upon being questioned, admit the wrong but justify himself? That's what Adam did, right? He admitted the wrong, but then he said it was the woman. And then God asked the woman, and she said it was the serpent. So they're admitting that they did wrong, but then they are passing the buck. They are shifting the blame. This is a heart that is not yet repentant, but at least he knew what he did was wrong, right? So would he humble himself and admit he was wrong and repent? Would he not humble himself, but at least admit he's wrong so that there could be a, at least the, the, the soil of repentance? And so God asks this question. Well, unfortunately, neither of these were reality in the life of Cain. Cain did not, when God said, where's your brother, say, I killed him. This was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Nor did he say, I killed him, but he deserved it. He says instead, I don't know. He admits no wrong. He seeks to cover his sin. Cain says, I don't know, but even beyond that, he actually adds to that by saying, am I my brother's keeper? Is it my job to keep tabs on where my brother is at all times? As if God didn't know. So God asked a question to prick Cain's conscience and perhaps in a sense afford him an opportunity to repent. Cain did not avail himself to this opportunity. And at this point, of course, God then confronts him. And he says in verse 10, what hast thou done? Then God tells him that the voice of his brother's blood cries unto God from the ground. And in this, we gain some insights. This is an interesting idea. The voice of his brother's blood cries from the ground. Insights into the character of God and the design of God as it relates to the spiritual realm in this world. The first thing we find here is that this is a confirmation of what we deduced from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Recall back in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And we saw in that the reality of God creating time, space, and matter. In the beginning, God creates time. God created the heaven, that would be space, and the earth. That is matter. If we want to add, as many scientists do today, energy, time, space, matter, and energy, then that would be in the God-created part, right? So in the beginning time, God created energy, the heaven, space, and the earth, matter. And so we, we see that God has done these things, and a God who, is, who creates time, space, energy, and matter is outside of time, space, energy, and matter. He stands above it. And if he stands above time, space, energy, and matter, that makes God omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Omniscient means he knows everything. Omnipresent means he is everywhere. And omnipotent means he is all-powerful. And all of these things are a reality in one who is outside of the system that he creates. If he created all things, then he is above all things, and he is outside of all things. Therefore, he, he has control over all things. And here we see, as God is interacting with Cain, God's omniscience, knowing all, and omnipresence, seeing all. That regardless of whatever Cain tried to conceal, there is no concealing anything from God. We need to remember this. We need to remember that there is no hiding anything from God. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. The, uh, the psalmist writes, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, that behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Men do evil in the darkness because darkness hides deeds. And that is something that is ingrained in man. And of course, there's a metaphor to this that carries very well into John chapter 1 and into 1 John as we'll consider together this evening. But man loves darkness because darkness conceals his misdeeds. But God does not regard darkness and light, right? He sees what's happening in the darkness. There is nothing that happens in the darkness that is not known to him and that will not be made known one day. So the psalmist well expresses the essence of this idea in Genesis 4. What Cain did in darkness, that doesn't necessarily mean, I'm not not explicitly saying Cain killed him in the night, although it's quite possible he did. But what he did in the darkness, no one else saw it, God did see in the light. What Cain did in private was manifest openly before God. And in this we are reminded of two things. As it relates to the idea that nothing gets past God. First, most naturally in Genesis chapter 4, this reminds us that God sees sin. God sees our sin. God sees the things that we do in the darkness as well as in the light. God knows what you do, what you think in the privacy of your own time. Others may not see it. It may not damage your reputation. They may not know the, 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 the things that you do, but God absolutely does. Just because the people around us don't see something doesn't mean we've gotten away with it. Solomon well expresses this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Paul would write about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So the reality of God knowing all and seeing all reminds us that we can't get away with anything if we think we have, well, there's coming a day where it will be re, uh, realized through judgment. But even in this verse, we find the other side of that coin as well which is just as important for us to remember. And by the way, let me, let me say one more thing about the judgment. We recognize that on the cross, Jesus took all sin, right? So that when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am free from the judgment of hell. But as we saw, especially in our Hebrew series recently, there is still coming a day where we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where we will get reward or suffer loss for the things that we have done. The fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins removes from us the guilt in Adam that compels God to send us to a place of eternal separation in the lake of fire. But it does not mean that we are not going to be accountable for the things that we do. And that we will not, on the day of judgment, suffer loss for those things that we have done outside of faith, outside of the word of God, and then be rewarded for those things done in faith and according to the word of God. So that's the idea there that we are reminded. We are reminded also that just as we will not get away with anything, nor will anyone else, there's a lot of injustice in this world. It's always been that way. In the past, in, in, in recent history, we can say that injustice has uh, flared up, if we would. 
whether we talk about the last couple of years with all of the anger surrounding uh, the, the world's response to uh, COVID and whatever else. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of injustice. There's a, a, a lot of things happening that we look at and we say, this simply is not right. And the frustration of that, whenever we look at those things, is we say, it's wrong, it's unjust, and they're getting away with it. The powers that be are getting away with it. And we're reminded, no one gets away with anything. They may get away with it on this earth. They may live out the rest of their days laughing and saying, we got away with it until the moment they take their last breath. And then they'll realize they got away with nothing. And this is the last great consolation of the righteous. The last great consolation of the righteous. We do what we can in this life to see justice, to see peace, to bring about in our days life and, well, and, and, and wellness for ourselves and for our family. But should those things not meet us in this life, the last great consolation of the righteous is that there is a life to come. And that in that life, God makes all things right. And of course, this compels us to comfort as it relates to the wicked. But it also reminds us to be right. To make sure we're on God's side. So that's that negative side, right? That's that idea of God sees the bad things we do. But there's also another side to this coin. If God sees all and knows all, on the day of judgment, the God who sees all and knows all will not just hold us accountable for the wrongs we have done, but there is also reward for the right that is done. And this is something that we don't often think about when we think about the idea of God seeing all and God knowing all. The old idiom says, character is what you do when no one's watching. And it's a good idiom. The concept is, the things that are actually ingrained in me are the things that I do, not compelled by the fact that someone's watching me do them, that, that I have to do them because I'm accountable, but simply by the fact that this is right and I have principles. And so I live by those principles and we say that that is character. And that's a, a, a good idea. The real them comes out when you're alone and the real you, the things that you do when you're alone, when no one's watching, that's the real you. And that's, that, that's a good uh, idiom. However, we also recognize the limitation of that idiom, which is that we actually aren't ever alone, are we? Maybe there are things which you have done for God and you've done them in faith and you've done right and you've never, as it were, received the credit on earth. Mom and dad, you did, you did something, you did something right, you did well. Mom and dad never acknowledged it. Husband or wife never acknowledged it. Pastor never acknowledged it. You've served the church, you've helped in, in, in manifold ways. You've done the behind-the-scenes stuff, cleaning the church, organizing things, things that pastor never asked you to do, things that nobody ever asked you to do. You come and you go, and it's not acknowledged. It seems as though it's not even noticed. You've never been thanked. Maybe you've done for your siblings, your parents, your spouse, your family, these things, and the family just moves on as if it's never happened, or even takes it for granted and says, yeah, you should have done that. You better do that. And there's no thankfulness. There's no gratitude. There's, no, there's nothing of advantage in this life for the things that you've done. And yet the character of God assures us 
that the God who sees in secret rewards openly. That though it may have gone unnoticed, your faith, your diligence, your love, your forgiveness may have gone unnoticed in this life. It has not gone unnoticed before the throne of God. God saw you do that thing. And that too will be revealed on the day of judgment. And on that day, you will receive the things done in your body, not just the bad, but also the good. Thus, there's always reason. There's always reason to do good. Yeah, but if I do good, then, then the bad guy's going to win. The bad guy does bad things. I do good things. The bad guy laughs all the way to the bank. Yeah? In this life, maybe that's the case. You turn to the other cheek. You offered forgiveness. You allowed, someone to ta- be, to, you, you allowed yourself to be taken advantage of. And in this life, you say, man, they got away with that one. Man, good guys finish last. Well, yeah, in this life, oftentimes they do. But there's coming a day when you'll stand before a much, much greater throne. And on that day, righteousness prevails every time. We got to remember that. And so we're reminded that God sees all, God knows all. Therefore, if God will hold us accountable, both for the good and the bad... We, we recognize that that's going to happen, not just for us, but for others. This but allows us to be confident, even in the midst of suffering, that God is in control and no man gets away with anything. So, this first passage teaches us, first thing in this passage, excuse, us, excuse me, teaches us about God's character is that he sees all and he knows all. All men will answer. The second thing that this passage teaches us about God's character is that he is just. God tells Cain here in this very interesting idiom that his brother's blood cries unto God from the ground. The blood of the man who is slain in innocence was not at rest, but that before God's eyes an injustice happened which demanded satisfaction. We know from the scriptures that God is uniquely sensitive to injustice. We've talked about this in any number of contexts, the ways in which God is uniquely sensitive to injustice. So much so that even, as the Proverbs warn us, if, a, if, if I rejoice over the fall of my enemy, God might reduce the consequence upon that enemy as a uh, natural consequence of the injustice done as you rejoice over his downfall. And so God is just. God sees all, God knows all, but every wrong must be made right. Every injustice must be satisfied with justice. And while injustice reigns in a situation, that cry is before the ears of God. And this should cause mankind to fear injustice. This should cause our leaders to fear injustice. This should cause us to fear injustice. Because that injustice... has not gone unnoticed to God. When injustice is done, when the innocent are defrauded, when they are abused, when, there is, when the innocent are, are murdered, when injustice abounds on earth, 
The cry of that injustice rests upon the heart of God. It rises to his ears. And of course, we know that this is an idiomatic expression. We don't exactly know how it works as it relates to the nature of God's creation and and, and the spiritual realm and and the idea of the blood of, of Abel crying out from the earth. But what we know, at least idiomatically, is that God saw this injustice and that injustice needed to be made right. And before all is finished within the scope of God's plan, this is what the Bible tells us quite clearly, God will make all things right. Justice will be done. So we continue in verses 11 and 12. God says to Cain, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. And when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. So in response to Cain's guilt and sin, God adds a curse to Cain above that which is the standard curse of man. Recall that God had cursed Adam and said that the earth would would resist him, right? That thorns and thistles would grow and that he would have to grow from the through the sweat of his brow. But God says to Cain here that he is cursed from the earth, and he goes on to explain what it means that he's cursed from the earth. First, that the earth would no longer yield to him the fruit of the ground. Now, remember, Cain was a tiller of the earth, right? This was his vocation. Abel kept the the flocks. Cain tilled the earth. So the idea here is not inherently that Cain will no longer have food, but rather that he will no longer prosper in the vocation which which had to this point defined his life. That as the earth was made to drink the blood of innocent Abel, now the earth would withhold its blessings from Cain. And we don't know all the ins and outs of exactly how that worked and what that means. But it was there nonetheless. Now, the second idea of him being cursed from the earth is also mentioned. That he would be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. An outcast of civil society is one who has broken both the civil contract and the familial contract by shedding the innocent blood of his brother. It disqualifies him from the benefits of society that would otherwise be granted to him and his family. And this is actually the first glimmers of a civil justice system of a sort. We won't see civil government enacted until after Noah. But we see the first glimmers of it here. The idea that Cain has forfeited his rights in civil society by virtue of this action. And that's actually what the justice system initially, a punitive justice system in in a rightly related nation is supposed to do, right? And so he's disqualified from the benefits of that society that would otherwise be granted to him. Now, Cain's reaction to this is quite dramatic. Verse 13 and 14, the, <coughs> excuse me, the Bible says, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. So Cain's contemplations of these consequences rest quite heavy upon him. He says that they're greater than he can bear. First, because he would have to live the remainder of his days in fear for his own life fearing the vengeance of others who knew of his wickedness. So he was afraid of the vengeance of man, something else which is reflected in, uh, uh, in, in the nature of, of interactions when one does something terrible. There's a vengeance that's brought upon, a, a desire for justice, not just before God, but before man as well. But second, he says, his face would be hid from God. And we don't, again, know fully what this means. 
We'll find in verse 16 that when Cain is exiled, he goes into what's called the land of Nod. And, it, and the land of Nod is said to be out from the presence of the Lord. And this can bring us into a measure of speculation regarding the nature of God's interaction with people. We know that everyone was outside of the Garden of Eden now. So there was the Garden of Eden and then Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden and they lived outside of the Garden of Eden. But maybe they were still a central place where they worshipped and where the Lord's presence was. And the land of Nod was outside of that realm. Maybe it's a little bit more metaphorical. These are questions which the Bible generally leaves unanswered in the physical but what we can do is carry fully the, the spiritual metaphor here. As we contemplate the abiding presence of God through His Spirit that rests upon those who obey Christ's commands, as we're studying in our First John series, we can see here that Cain is refusing to repent and instead is being cast out of the presence of God. He is not in fellowship with God. The fellowship which God had restored to Adam and Eve when He clothed them with skins... And they were living in that fellowship as Abel and Cain brought their offerings before the Lord. And Cain re was rejected because of the nature of his offering, right? We talked about that last time, the nature of, of worship and a little bit of what, what may have been going on there that, that God rejected Cain's offering. And now he has killed his brother and he must leave the presence of the Lord. Back to the text, however, Cain's major physical concern is that there would be vengeance. Anyone who finds him would slay him. And this concern brings a promise of the Lord in verses 15 and 16. God says, the Lord said unto him, verse 15, Therefore whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So God places a mark on Cain, which becomes a sort of divine warning to any man who would avenge himself on Cain. That God had already placed a vengeance of sorts. God had already meted out justice upon Cain. And so there needed to be no justice meted out by man because it had been meted out by God. Any man who kills Cain would thus incur a sevenfold vengeance of God upon him. And this was intended to protect Cain from man's vengeance as we said, when God had already meted out that vengeance. Now, what this mark was, or whether it was even a visible mark at all, we do not know. It's very possible that it was not a physical mark, a visible mark, but rather uh, a sign which assured Cain that God's promise was true. And the reason why this is quite possible is because this Hebrew word, the Hebrew word translated here, um, mark, is used another 76 times in the, in the Old Testament. And every other time it's used in the Old Testament, with exception of this one, it's speaking of a sign. It's not speaking of a physical mark. It's speaking of a physical sign, right? So not necessarily something that would, that would inherently remain, but something that would be done, a sign of a promise or of a token or proof of something. And so there was some proof. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean the proof wasn't visible, as there were plenty of times where there would be a sign erected that would be a visible manifestation of a promise, such as, say, the rainbow, right? The rainbow is a visible manifestation of God's promise that appears regularly when it rains, and that every time it appears is a long-standing mark, a long-standing sign of God's promise that he would never again judge the earth with a flood.
It is, however, thus possible that this mark was visible. What it would be then, it's impossible to know and even to guess what it was. Various Jewish teachers have taught throughout the years that it was actually a dog that, that would stay with Cain. That was, that's, that's one of the, the theories within Jewish writings. Uh, another is that there was a horn that grew out of Cain's head. Another is that the letters of God's name were inscribed upon Cain's forehead. One of the most unfortunate and vile of these theories rests a bit closer to home in American Protestantism. Uh, the, those were all various Jewish teachings on the matter. There was a time in American Protestantism, particularly the Baptists of the 19th and 20th centuries, who uh, taught in the South particularly that the mark of Cain was black skin. Now, the Baptist Church in the United States formed explicitly around the teachings of equality of men and an abhorrence of slavery. If you look at the history of the Baptist Church, beginning with Roger Williams, uh, Roger Williams was actually kicked out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, first because he wanted to uh, be baptized again, but also because he saw the Indians as equals. He didn't want to take the land from them. He wanted to, at best, buy the land from them or let them have their land. It would turn out to be quite an uh, important thing that Roger Williams would be outcast. He would end up founding this little place called Providence, Rhode Island. And um, this would become a very important time because he ended up being a mediator between many of the, the colonists and the Indians during wars and such and saved a great number of lives because he had that rapport. So the Baptist church was actually built around these ideas. It was uh, uh, Danbury Baptist that Thomas Jefferson was writing to when he was talking about the separation of church and state because this was a very important thing specifically to Baptists in the early colonies. But as this issue of slavery became more divisive in the country, Baptist churches in the southern states sought to justify their culture and economy by reading into the curse of Cain black skin. And this led to a split between the northern and the southern Baptists with the Southern Baptist Church insisting that black skin was in fact the curse of Cain and thus those with black skin were a cursed race of people and this was intended to justify the mistreatment. That they were a cursed race, therefore they had every, that the, 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 the white-skinned race had every right to abuse them because they were the cursed race of Cain. Now naturally such a justification is wrong. It is blasphemy against the character of God. It's an egregious misapplication of his word. Uh, it, takes in, it takes nothing into account as it relates to the history of the word of God. In relation to God's promises, the Bible recognizes two cultures, Jew and Gentile. That's in relation to God's promises. In relation to God's design, the Bible recognizes one race, the human race. Paul would say this explicitly in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. He says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. All nations which dwell upon the face of the earth are made of one blood, one race, the human race, in all different shades of brown from dark to light. 
with all different genetic propensities based upon dominant strands in various regions of the earth. That's to be understood. But the life of the flesh is in the blood. And every man, woman, and child, regardless of culture, class, or color, bleeds the same blood, bears the same image of God, and has the same potential, the same image of God and man, unto judgment and reward. And in the church, this is all the more so, right? In society, there will always be classism. There will always be racism. There will always be sexism. That will always happen in society. Always. It's inherent in the human heart to be sectarian. But Paul teaches something very different as it relates to the church. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28, he says this, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, speaking to these believers in Galatia. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Here we find ourselves in a unique time as it relates to relationships between cultures and what the world will call races, right? We would not regard that. We would say that there are cultural divides, but we would not regard that racial divide. But we'll, we'll, we'll let the, the world's term race be there for a minute. In an effort to divide the nation based upon its original sin, which was indeed slavery, strong influences in our society have cast off the forgiveness which the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement extended in an effort to unify the nation around common humanity and have instead sought to drag our society back into the depths of division and grievance surrounding the issues of skin color and cultural divergence. And this is a tremendous grief to we who are in the Church of Christ. It ought to be, and, and indeed it is. We hold the principles of being one in Christ. The principles out, even outside of the church, those who are outside of the church, we hold to these principles of the natural human dignity that when God made man and woman, he breathed into them the breath of life, man became a living soul. He conferred upon them a natural dignity. And that natural dignity is conferred upon every human. And we see a country intentionally divided along arbitrary lines of skin color. And this is a grief to us. But the world is going to do what the world is going to do. We talked about this as it relates to marriage as well when we were defining marriage biblically. The world is going to do what the world is going to do. But as Christ promised that he has overcome the world, let this determination rest in the hearts of every one of God's people as it relates to societal division. That we will not regard any synthetic or arbitrary division among men. That God has placed into each of us his image, endowed us with a spirit to know him, and called all men unto a personal and thriving relationship with him through belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that once this belief happens, the in, to the church, we are all one in Christ. There is no cultural divide of Jew and Greek. There is no economic divide of bond or free. There is no biological divide of male and female. We are all one in Christ. Now, does that mean there aren't differences? No. 
Can we acknowledge those differences? Absolutely. The church, in fact, acknowledges those differences between male and female. The church is one of the last bastions that does nowadays. We recognize that not all cultures are created equal. So that though a Jew and a Greek, as the the scriptures would say, or the Jew and the Gentile, we are one in Christ, that doesn't mean that one culture is not better than the other culture. And we can acknowledge those things. We can be objective in those ways. But that doesn't reflect upon the person just because of their culture, just because of their skin color, just because of their biological sex. In this world, we will contend with the frustration of bigotry. We will meet many who have been deeply hurt by actions against themselves or against others because of bigotry. But the church is called to be a place where we regard the image of God in man where we respect people because of their inherent human dignity. Through our obedience to the call of Christ, we are called to love one another, to forgive one another. There's no room for grievance in the church. There's no room for division in the church among any of these arbitrary lines. Under the banner of God's promises... God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The suffering of this life is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will follow. It is for us to forgive, it is for us to love. It is not for us to avenge, it is not for us to live in grievance. And it is certainly not for us to cause said grievances. And may we set the example for society on what it looks like to hold the inherent dignity of man through the image of God that is in him higher than the arbitrary divisions that exist otherwise. So Cain goes out from the presence of the Lord. He has this mark, whether it was a mark, whether it was a sign or whether it was a mark, he takes this and he goes into the land of Nod in the east of Eden. We now learn in verses 17 through 24 of the generations of Cain. The Bible says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irid, and Irid begat uh, Mehujael, and Mehujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Ada bare Jabal, he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all such as handle harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wondering, wounding, excuse me, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. Okay, so we are introduced to the six, six generations of the line of Cain, seven generations of Adam, six generations of Cain, before coming to a unique situation surrounding the life of Lamech. For reference, Noah was the ninth generation of Seth, the tenth generation after Adam. So we're not quite to the times of Noah yet in Seth's line. We'll talk about that, not this week, but next week. So this genealogy doesn't, li- uh, doesn't trace Cain's line all the way to the flood, 
It was in that second generation of Cain's line, the, the third generation of Adam's line, the generation of Enoch, that we have a record of men building cities. Cain built a city and named it after his son. His son's name was Enoch. So we see that that, that, um, that building was built in Cain, or by Cain into that third generation. Man was thus organizing himself in various ways to secure human flourishing. But the text works through these generations quite quickly. We do see something in the idea of, of Cain building cities, and we're going to see that heightened and magnified in the lives of Lamech's children. So Lamech is the first uh, man of record to take two wives, named Ada and Zillah. In this, we find the second great design of God breached within the first six generations of man. In that first generation, we see the image of God breached by the murder of Abel. Cain breaches the design of God in the image of God, the natural human dignity that comes from the fact that God made them and breathed into them the breath of life. And then here in the seventh generation after Adam, Lamech breaches God's design in marriage through polygamy. And from the children of these two marriages, we have the record, ironically, of tremendous human progress. From Ada comes two brothers, Jabal and Jubal. The former, Jabal, was a keeper of cattle. That's not too far outside of the realm of what we've seen already with, with uh, Abel. But Jubal is a skilled musician. He, is a, he creates uh, um, uh, musical instruments, such as handle the harp, and organ, the scriptures tell us in verse 21. Now from Zillah comes a brother and a sister named Tubal-Cain and Naamah. And Tubal-Cain was a forger of brass and iron. Now specifically in the Hebrew, if you look at how the, the Hebrew lays it out, it's literally a hammerer of all kinds of cutting things based in brass and iron. So the idea here is not just that he is making nice images, he's actually building weapons, Okay. This is very important to our understanding of what's going on here. Tubal-Cain was a forger of weapons in brass and iron. It is perhaps worth noting, maybe not worth noting, that this is well before the Brass Age, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, well, well before that time. So human history has this conception of when these things happened, when iron was discovered, when uh, um, bronze was discovered. And if the word of God is true, which it is, um, they've got their timeline pretty wrong, Right? Uh, these things happened very early on, prior to the flood. Now, the flood's going to throw off all timing. So I don't fault the fact that scientists can't figure it out because the flood really throws things off. But they do have a record of it that could, they could correct themselves by if they chose to do so, and, and, and they haven't. So anyway, according to these accounts, the principal arts and manufacturing then in the world were invented by Cain's family. And this is interesting, but maybe not surprising in this, we are reminded that as it relates to the things of this world, as it relates to the things of this life, the unbeliever is certainly at no disadvantage. Because the portion of man, the unbelieving man, his portion is in this life, he's perhaps even more disposed to invest his innovation and his talent in the things of this life. So it maybe is not surprising that as we trace a lot of these innovations, they come through the line of Cain because these are the men who had their portion only in this life. These are the men that had rejected the revelation of God. They had stepped outside of the presence of God. People say, well, why is it that, that religious people, conservative people are so far outside of the arts 
seen. They seem so far outside of all of these various areas of, of, of life and of culture. Well, it's not that we're not talented. It's not that we don't have uh, capacities, but we have tremendously talented musicians within the church. But they're writing hymns. They're writing music that outside the church people don't want to listen to. Right? They're singing on a Sunday morning rather than singing before, uh, on, on, a, on a stage because they're not going to get the audience <laughs> for, for, for that kind of music to, to stand up before the world. It doesn't mean that the art is not there. It means that it has been repurposed unto a different end, unto an eternal end. And so this might make it look as though Christians are stunted in various areas of, of development as it relates to, to the arts or to the world that is around us, when in fact we have simply repurposed our focus to be more heavenly-minded. So the line of Cain is rooted in this world and its devices, and, and it's unto utility. Jabal is uh, cattle, unto beauty, Jubal with his music, and also unto destruction, and this is Tubal Cain. Weapons of war. The line of Cain, specifically Lamech, brings us then to a legacy. It continues a legacy. A legacy of humanity. Innovation in this world unto beauty, unto utility, but also unto destruction. It was that way then, it's that way now. Man is wonderfully innovative. It's incredible what man can do. The fact that, that God has created man in his image, has given him this mind, and the things that man has been able to do with his mind and his creativity and his innovation are amazing and magnificent. But the legacy of humanity is that we are not content just with beauty and utility. We also are very good at innovation unto destruction, aren't we? And so there's much beauty and utility to be had in humanity. We would even understand music to rest beyond man's innovation and rooted in the very character of God. Man uses his God-given mental power and innovation to subjugate the earth, even seen through the things today, technologically. It's not all evil by any means. But it's certainly very temporal, isn't it? And let us never forget that the things, the amazing innovations, the things that, that we pursue on this earth are still very rooted to this earth. And for all of the beauty and utility that the land of Nod offered, it also brought with it destruction and evil. And none of it compared to the joy that came from living in the presence of the Lord. And may this be a very potent and important lesson to us as it would be to them at that time and anyone orienting themselves to the history of mankind through Genesis. This world does have much creativity and much beauty. Man is capable of magnificent things. His creativity and his innovation are astounding. It testifies all around us to that. But the testimony of the scriptures compels us at the very least metaphorically to keep these things in their proper place that these things are still rooted in this world and they will not profit for the life to come. No matter how lovely, how graceful, how innovative, how creative, the things of this world will still, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 22, perish with the using. 
And to this end, it is not for us to connect ourselves too strongly to the things of this world. We gladly use them. We are even welcome to excel in them. But we don't live for them. Rather, as Paul would compel us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Keep the things of this world in their proper place in your heart and in your mind, Christian. The innovations of man, though derived from this world, present to us opportunity to sanctify them unto God's use, at least some of them, to direct those uses unto righteousness, to oppose unrighteousness. This is all wonderful, but keep it in its proper place. And the reason why all of this matters is because as we look at the final two verses of our time today, in verses 23 and 24, Lamech seemed to miss this. So we have here, I'll read it again. Lamech said unto his two wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. Now this is um, a Hebrew, this is a song. It's Hebrew poetry. And this song is somewhat ambiguous in nature. It is known in theology as the song of the sword. And its interpretation is much debated. Some believe, and this is kind of how the King James translates it, that what Lamech is doing here is he is admitting to killing a man, but he speaks to it as more or less an accident, what we would call today manslaughter. He says, I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. So the idea there being that he had done this thing and he didn't want to do it or mean to do it and it it was an error on his part. And so because it was an error on his part, he says that if if Cain were to be avenged sevenfold, that he would be avenged avenged ten times that, right? Seventy times sevenfold because he was all the more innocent when compared to Cain's transgression. And that would be one idea, one uh, perspective, one interpretation. But it seems that there's actually another interpretation that I I like better, one that makes a little bit more sense to me. And of course, I could be wrong. I'm wrong all the time, right? Um, I'm sure you all drive home saying all the ways the pastor was wrong every week, and, and that's fine. But it seems likely that there was a hypothetical idea here. And the idea would be this. Instead of the, and and remember, the Hebrew language is somewhat ambiguous. So when when we see uh, the different tenses and such that were being used here in translation, uh, contextually, there's some wiggle room there. So when he says, I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt, it's actually quite possible that this was a, 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 um, a hypothetical idea here, that whoever inflicts a wound upon Lamech, whether young or old, that man would incur 10 times the vengeance at the hands of Lamech that God had incurred upon Cain. And you say, well, how would this then connect to the rest of the narrative? And this is actually why I believe this is a good interpretation or a possible interpretation. Because we have just learned that Lamech's son, Tubal Cain, was a maker of weapons. And the thought here then, within this line of interpretation, within this song, would be this. Lamech now has access to these weapons of brass and iron. And as he stands with these weapons in his hand, he says, I can now avenge man myself. I don't need God. 
to avenge me. I can now do the destruction. I can now do the avenging. I can now do the violence upon anyone who would wound me. I can wound them back 10 times greater than God wounded Cain. And this would actually be consistent with what we then see next, which is, as we see the generations, when we get past the table of nations, man is doing what is right in his own eyes, and the earth is filled with what? Violence continually. The propensity of man to destroy himself, to destroy one another. And so this is a possibility as well. The arrogance of human invention Seeing invention as a source of power to be used for oneself above others. To hold that which we have learned as a means by which to dominate rather than help. As a means by which to control rather than to confer mercy or grace. So then as Lamech contemplates the weapons which were perhaps derived from Tubal-Cain's inventions, his skill in brass and iron, he thought on the power that he would have through these weapons to avenge himself on others and to hold himself above others. So in essence, in that this is a song, and it's a song about using weapons to avenge himself on others, we might say that this was the first rap song. It's a bit of a joke. But all the more importantly, charting a twofold course for humanity. One portion, and this is what we see, this is why we're tracing Cain's line, one portion of humanity following God, standing in the presence of God, resting in the presence of the creator of all flesh, the other portion of humanity directed toward the God of this world. And this contrast will become evident next time as we see Seth come, come, come into the picture. And we'll talk about who Seth is, why he matters. And then as we do that, I hope to connect some dots to a much broader theme, a much broader narrative that is being established through the presentation of the earthly line of Cain and then what we would call the messianic line of Seth. And we'll talk about that next time. But for today, we've learned a lot today. There's been a lot of information. It's been an information-rich sermon. But let's review some of the things we've learned. First, of the character of God. That there is nothing hid that God does not know. That God is just and his justice will be meted out. That means both good and the bad. That means to we who are walking in righteousness, to those who are walking in righteousness... The Bible says that the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That we, can, that we can hold up our heads and know that on the day of judgment, we will stand before God in confidence of knowing that we do right. But then for the man that does wrong, the exact opposite to be true. The danger, the reality that God will judge because God sees all, knows all, and nothing is hid from him. Second, we've learned of the character of man, not just of God, but of man. That man is innovative, he is creative, he is skilled, even apart from the presence of God. And yet, apart from the presence of God, man is predisposed to use his innovation and his skill to desecrate God's design, to pursue the lust of the flesh, to destroy himself and to destroy others, rather than to pursue these things unto God's glory. And this is, in fact, the legacy of humanity as the Bible presents it. And it's also the legacy of humanity as, his, as history has taught us, isn't it? That man does have a propensity to take his innovations, to take his knowledge, to take his creativity, to take all of those things that God has given us unto human flourishing and to pervert and to twist and to use them to destroy ourselves and others. 
And so we're compelled to rest our feet firmly in the presence of God. Echoing the words of David in Psalm 84. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. We are called to have a perspective by which we hold this world loosely. We are called in Genesis. If we were to shed everything else we know about the Bible, this would be the passage where we're reading and we say, man has now gone on a a two-path divergence here. One, doing his own thing, living for this world, and taking the things that he has innovated in this world and using them, yes, for beauty, but also for destruction. And then you have those who walked the path in the presence of God. And we haven't gotten yet quite to them. We haven't gotten to what to their legacy. But we'll see it next time with Seth. Then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. And so this is a perspective-setting period in human history. And it's, of course, still laying the foundation for us to understand why we're here, what, what, why things are the way they are, and what God is going to do. The call for us, then is to hold this world loosely, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, to use this world while not abusing this world, to cling to God's design above those things that we see with our eyes, to not allow the pleasures of sin for a season to override our relationship with God, as did Cain and his line, unto their own wounding and hurt. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.